Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My Uncle Paul is back for a third chapter regarding his interest in life and experiences. This time we talk about climbing into a girl's dormitory to deliver kisses, literally demolishing a girl's dormitory, a sleeping projectionist, a whopper eating contest, falling from grace and finding restoration. But first up, what it was like to work in a sauerkraut cannery. My senior year in high school, dad and mom moved back to Indiana to a city called Crothersville. And so that was my last year in high school before I went off to college. And after high school and then also after my first year in college, I would come back to Crothersville and and live and work in a canning factory for both summers. You said that I guess you and the other migrant workers learned how to make sauerkraut? (laughs) We were part of the process. I'll just call it that. Uh, They were making sauerkraut in that canning factory. And so um, I was just one of the workers uh, that they hired for the summer to to work with the cabbage crop. Well, cabbage is uh, shredded and they add salt to it to help it ferment. My job in that process uh, was to go down into a rather large vat. They had multiple vats there that were about 20 feet across and about 20 feet deep. And they were made out of some sort of wood. I'm not sure if it was walnut or what it was made out of, but it was a large vat. Uh, and they would lower us down in there. Uh, we'd climb down a ladder, and then we would stay in the vat throughout the whole day, loading that up with cabbage. As the cabbage just came out uh, of the conveyor belt, it would drop into a wheelbarrow, and then they would wheelbarrow that over to us and dump it down into the vat. So we would start off at the beginning of loading up that vat, standing on the floor, and as they dumped the cabbage into the vat, uh, we would have pitchforks and we would just spread it around uh, evenly. And it would gradually just work its way toward the top. And we would stand on top of the, the cabbage uh, as it would fill up the vat. So it was a long process to fill up a vat. It would take a, a good day or so to fill up that large vat with the cabbage coming off the conveyor belt. There were, there were, I think, three of us that were down in the vat. I wasn't by myself. There were two others that were down there helping helping uh, spread out the cabbage. Did you wear shoes, or were you down there barefoot on the cabbage? Oh, no, they gave us um, rubber boots. You know, we took off our shoes and, and got into these rubber boots that they supplied. And uh, that was uh, what we 
head on. And sometimes the just the juice from the cabbage, it was fluid in the sense that uh, you could stand on top of the cabbage uh, halfway up the vat, but it also had uh, the juices of the cabbage too. So it was, it was somewhat uh, able to walk on it, but it was also sometimes pockets in there. And so your, your foot would go down into the, the cabbage and, and sometimes the, uh, the juice of the cabbage would get inside of your boot. Um, and so we would just dump it out and put our foot back in it and keep working. So how often do you eat sauerkraut today? Well, I didn't eat sauerkraut for a long time after that because <laughs> I knew the process that happened uh, that I observed personally firsthand. And I don't know what else. I mean, the one time somebody accidentally put the pitchfork through their boot uh, and through their foot and their foot was was bleeding. But we didn't stop working. We just kept on working. And one time a guy had to go to the restroom and he he went to the restroom over on the side and, and and just dumped it down and then they just peed right into the uh, cabbage juice. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you talk about fermentation that would add a little, uh, a zip to the <laughs> sauerkraut. So I, then those vats were covered up, uh, and they were left to ferment. And then, uh, I guess the next year or sometimes later they would, uh, can, the now sauerkraut into cans. So it was, it was a long process uh, to make from cabbage to sauerkraut. I didn't have an interest of eating sauerkraut, but now I do. I like it. My wife doesn't like it, so we don't have it real often around here. So I assume with the fermentation process, that would, like in theory, kill any bacteria or blood or whatever had gotten into it. Uh, I guess you're right. I. Uh, I guess my logic didn't carry that far, and I wasn't a big fan of sauerkraut for, for a while. Okay. <laughs> but you're probably right. I mean, uh, and the the percentage of the blood from God, some guy's foot into a vat that large, and it spread it spread around, it's, it, uh, it's probably not going to be harmful at all. And you're right, the fermentation, it has a way of purifying. It's funny how we think that sounds kind of gross, as far as someone's foot getting into the sauerkraut, but at the same time, people make a big deal about you know uh, drinking wine that's been pressed by beautiful barefoot women. So, <laughs> well, and even oxen used to be down in the where they would we would turn the grinding the corn and things like that. So I don't you know the uh, percentage is kind of so small that it doesn't make that much difference at all. They also had um, government officials, and they would walk around in white cap, capes, or jackets, and, and they would uh, test, always be testing. Uh, they would take samples every so often, and if uh, a sample came back bad, they would uh, kick out the whole batch. Mm. So that was done in the process. I would see that happen, and they kind of had a, a lab room where they would take these samples back. I particularly worked on the... Um, tomato juice line uh, operating a machine that would put the lids on the cans. So the, the, the cans would come through and they'd squirt uh, tomato juice, a tomato soup actually, in, in the uh, cans and then my machine would put the lid on it. But every so often the uh, food and drug person would come over and take a can off of my machine 
and just test it to see if it was correct. Handshakes and smiles, handshakes and smiles. Up above your chin, put on a great big grin, let happiness become your style. Everywhere you go, let your pearly show. If you gotta wear a frown, turn it upside down, come on and shake a hand, a handshake smile. You eventually would go to Trebekah College in Nashville, Tennessee. You said you had this friend named Benita. And yes. she told you about uh, something that had never happened to her, but she'd always wanted <laughs> to happen. And you obliged her. So explain that. <laughs> yeah, there were six of us that kind of hung around in college and spent a lot of time together. And Benita was one of the six, a good friend. And, you know, when friends are together, you talk about all kinds of things. But she just happened to, to mention to the bunch of us that, she had never been woken up in the morning with a kiss. And I don't know why I took that upon myself to make sure that happened. <laughs> but I work for the, <laughs> I work for the uh, maintenance department at Trevecca. And my job was to go around and cut the grass and trim the trees and pick up trash and different things like that. So I knew where Benita's room was um, because she would, uh, she was up on the second floor and she would sit uh, by her window and just chat to people who were walking by. I mean, that's just kind of what Benita did. She was really friendly with everybody. So I knew where her uh, bedroom window was and and I had access to a uh, the ladders there in the maintenance department. And so one morning uh, I just went out and got a ladder and extended the ladder all the way up to her uh, window, and then I quietly opened up her window and crawled in kind of halfway, uh, still on the ladder, but uh, halfway into her room and, and, and kissed her on the cheek and said, good morning, Benita. <laughs> <laughs> and lowered the window and, and down the ladder and just left. And that was it. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. She's still a good friend of mine. She lives in Louisville, Kentucky, and we talk occasionally. Uh, so we were born, and this is a kind of a side story, we were born in the same hospital just a few days apart huh. in Louisville, Kentucky. And we laughed about maybe getting mixed up in the hospital and <laughs> came home with the wrong baby. But, yeah, she was a good friend of mine. You explained that when you you growing up, in, as especially as a pastor's kid in the Nazarene church, uh, there was kind of this, I don't know, this way of interacting with the world with not getting involved in it too much. And so you didn't know about a lot of things. For example, y'all didn't have a TV, and uh, you didn't know a lot about a lot of pop music. But when you got to Dreveka, you found that were other Christian kids who were raised differently. And, of course, you got exposed to all kinds of stuff, including that, that band. I forget their name. They come from Lu- uh, Liverpool, England. Uh, <laughs> the Beatles. Oh yeah, those guys. Uh, talk about that. <laughs> that must have been quite an experience, almost like a culture shock. Yeah, we weren't. Uh, we didn't have a television, and my uh, window to the world uh, as a teenager growing up was radio, and so I had a radio transistor radio that we would listen to, especially at night, because in the evening. Uh, you, you kind of ran out of things to do and you couldn't go outside because it was dark. So 
we would listen to baseball games. So we would listen to uh, news and different things. But that was our only real window to the world. We did occasionally get a newspaper, but not very often. It wasn't a staple in our home. So going off to college where you have uh, a confluence of a lot of kids from different cultures, I remember the kids coming up from Florida. I mean, they <laughs> they were a whole lot different than than us. I'll say it that way, and more free in the way they dressed. And of course, they were familiar with the beaches of Florida and and didn't have a problem with uh, what we call mixed bathing. You know, different sexes swimming in the beach. It was a culture shock. I had a roommate at uh, Trebekah who uh, loved the Beatles and he had cassettes. Uh, it was back in the cassette day and had cassettes of the Beatles that he would play. And that was my introduction to the, the music of the day. I, I was not familiar with that at all. And then we're talking the early seventies. So the Beatles had been around for a good uh, eight years or so. Um, and so I was just captivated by the music. I loved it. So my experience with music, uh, to that point was pretty much church music, hymns in particular, but also some Gaither music and things like that. But yeah, I, I you know, I loved it. I still do uh, love the, the music of the Beatles. Ring with a friend, I said you called up a robber. I'd say one of your crowning achievements, academic achievements possibly, while you were at Trevecca was that uh, you entered a, a eating contest at Burger King. <laughs> yeah, um, Burger King had a, uh, a yearly tradition where they would invite uh, Trevecca students to come over to the local Burger King and have a burger, uh, a Whopper eating contest. And so the contest was represented by two uh, guys from each class. So you had two freshmen, two sophomore, two junior, two seniors. And so the eight of us would uh, have the opportunity to eat as many Whoppers as we could eat in one hour. You didn't have to pay for it, right? Oh, no, didn't have to pay for it. They were furnished to us. The, the caveat, we could all uh, refuse to have one condiment on the Whopper. Otherwise, it was it had everything on it. And uh, I remember one guy, he didn't like mayonnaise, so he didn't have the mayonnaise on his Whoppers. And I didn't like onions on my Whoppers, so I didn't have onions. But <laughs> it, you couldn't say, I don't want a burger on it, of course. <laughs> you, you, it was just the condiments. You could take off the ketchup or whatever. So then the contest was one hour, and eight of us sat down at the table and they gave us each a Whopper and off we went and they would supply us with Whoppers uh, that were designed for us with without the condiment. And so um, I think I was a sophomore at the time. And so what was the end result? Well, as uh, the um, time progressed, you know, some just dropped out because they couldn't eat anymore. One guy, oh, you couldn't vomit. Uh, so this one guy, he upchucked right across from oh. me. That was pleasant. And uh, and so he was disqualified. And so it finally got down to where about 10 minutes to go, or I don't know how much to go, 
there was only two of us. It was me and another guy, and he was a junior in uh, college. And so he was about a burger ahead of me. Uh, at that time, I had eaten five or so, and he was like on six or so. And so um, after a while, you just don't feel like you can eat anymore, but you know, you keep trying because you want to kind of win the contest. But he was savvy enough to where uh, he wouldn't eat. Uh, and he was watching me because he was already a burger ahead. And so uh, if I would take a bite, he would take a bite. And then he would just wait. And then he was, I, it was obvious to me I was not going to uh, catch up um, to him because he was already far ahead. So I came in second of uh, the Whopper eating contest. I, I consumed uh, six or close to six. So they counted that I had eaten six and he had eaten seven or something like that. So and he got a trophy, first prize. And what did you get? Well, my prize was I got coupons for six since I, I had eaten six. I got a coupon for six uh, Whoppers, <laughs> which I was not inclined to eat Whoppers for a long time. Uh, I can barely eat one now, so I don't know how, imagine how I ate that many, but I, I did. <laughs> The funny thing is, I was not a, a large guy. I was pretty skinny, actually. And the other guy, he wasn't very big either. Uh, it was, we were just, I don't know, had big stomachs. I don't know what the deal was. When I was living in Nashville, after I went to Trebekah, I ended up having my own business. And uh, I hadn't been there but maybe like five months. And then I get this eviction notice. And everybody got it who was in the building. They said the building was going to be demolished. And so we had X amount of days to get out. So uh, I found another location, but on the last day of business in that building, I had a big party, and I, you know, I said, by the way, uh, you can destroy anything you want to, with the exception of the stock, you know, my, my product. Yes. And <laughs> that that might have been a slight mistake because you know this was a lot of bohemians and punks and stuff were in that area. <laughs> And did they come with sledgehammers? They they did uh, bricks, but they had a good time. But you had a kind of a similar experience at Treveca. You want to talk about that? The um, dormitory that was still standing when I went to college had been there for years. Matter of fact, my mom stayed in that dormitory, and uh, a couple aunts who also went to her mom's sisters also went to Treveca. They stayed in McKay Hall. McKay uh, was going to be demolished, and it had historically been a woman's dormitory, ladies' dormitory. So um, they, I don't know why, decided to use uh, that dormitory its last year as a men's dormitory, uh, I think because they had built a new one for the, for the ladies across campus, and then they were going to just demolish that one anyway. So they... They put a bunch of guys in there knowing that that was going to be torn down the end of the year. So we pretty much uh, wrecked it. I mean, we didn't we didn't take sledgehammers like your buddies uh, might have done, but we um, there was nothing sacred about there. And we painted our walls different colors and did different things to uh, to make it our own. And then at the end of the year, they they tore it down. So we we kind of advanced the cause of demolition uh, <laughs> because we we weren't real concerned about how clean it was or what we did to the rooms. Someone put a sign out front. It said McKay 
Hall and someone uh, changed it to Decay Hall. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was definitely decaying. And it was fun. I mean, we, we were just a bunch of guys having fun. Nothing really seriously mean about us. To keep our lamps all trimmed and bright, our wedding garments on. And something moving in my soul says, child, you'll soon be gone. I'll help the love be gone from this whole world below, below, to heaven's While you were at college, there was a Christmas concert or something in Madisonville, Kentucky, which is real close to where I live now. My parents lived in Indiana, I'll say it that way, uh, when I was in college. And there was a girl that I knew back in Indiana who um, we were good friends because we had been on what was called the impact team, which is a district team of teenagers who kind of sing and, and do different things and go to different churches. So I, I knew this girl from being on that team. And she was dating a guy who was at Trevecca. She didn't go to Trevecca. She was uh, going to some other school somewhere. But her her boyfriend, Danny, was also at Trevecca. And so during Christmas break, I went back home to uh, Bedford, Indiana. And she called me and asked if I wanted to go to a concert with her uh, down in Madisonville, Kentucky, which is where the the home with the happy goodman and so i said yeah I'd, I'd love to do that uh i like the the happy goodmans knew their music and so i went to her city which is Cory, indiana and met up with her parents so her and i and her parents drove from her home city down to madisonville kentucky to have on new year's eve you have a uh, kind of a, an all-night sing, they used to call them, which basically meant you had a concert that lasted up to about midnight, and then that was the end of the, of the concert. So uh, I met her and her parents, and then we drove down to Massonville, Kentucky, and her dad was uh, fairly well-to-do and liked nice cars, and he had a really pretty nice Cadillac. And so on our trip down and back, he let me drive that car. <laughs> uh, wow, which was really neat, you know, to drive a Cadillac. So well, we drove down and had the concert and uh, went back home. And then only to discover the only reason that she asked me to go to that concert with her was because Danny had broken up with her. Ooh. And she was trying to make him jealous. So... Uh, she had this date with me. I think it was lined up with her mom because her mom really did like me and really wanted her to, to marry me, but she was dating this other guy and ended up marrying him. They got back together thanks to uh, my, uh, I guess, concert trip that made him jealous of me. I don't know. He never said that. We were good friends at, at Trevecca, so uh, what do you think between us? We liked each other, played softball and baseball, basketball together, and we're good friends. Uh, but it made him jealous enough, I guess, that uh, they got back together and got married and lived happily ever after. <laughs> huh. You know, growing up in the Nazarene Church, and I think a lot of denominations are this way, they, they are pretty protective of, you know, kind of bad theology or practice, you know, getting into their churches. And so I don't think my parents were this way necessarily, but I remember some people at church, they, 
they were real wary of listening to music or reading books by people from other denominations. Like I would say like the Happy Goodmans, for example, because they, they were of the what Pentecostal background. I, I know yes. some Nazarenes weren't too thrilled about that. Uh, but they were, you know, more than happy to uh, listen to the Spear family, who were Nazarenes, and of course Bill Gaither, also Nazarene. Uh, do you remember those controversies? Yes, I think um, the Nazarene Church would sometimes define itself by what we were not, mm-hmm. uh, rather than what we were. So there even uh, there was even a book that came out. It was a little book, but um, the title of the book was "Why I Am a Nazarene." and not and so each chapter dealt with um a christian denomination or a christian cult we might say that uh this person wrote and each chapter had to do with some denomination or some for instance the title of one chapter would be why i am a nazarene and not a mormon Uh and the next chapter would be why i'm a nazarene and not a seven-day adventist and then uh, I think there was a chapter in there why I'm a Nazarene and not a Pentecostal. And so it was just, and a Catholic, and it's going down the list, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> different. And so uh, sadly, we would define ourselves by what we were not. And rather than defining ourselves by what we were, um, so the Nazarenes were pretty uh, protective uh, and exclusive in some uh, quarters of the denomination your dad and and me were raised in uh nazarene parsons dad was the pastor but dad was not real um how can i say this he would not he was not real exclusive um dad used to take us to the catholic church uh for midnight mass or to christmas mass and had a close relationship with the priests of the Catholic Church. So hmm. he was fairly ecumenical as far as Nazarene pastors were concerned. Uh, I wouldn't say he was real ecumenical, but he was he was inclusive and friendly and not uh, adversarial to people who didn't uh, believe exactly like we did. I know that I'm poor, but I got a lot more than many rich folks that I Also, during your time at Trevecca, uh, you would end up going down to, to Brazil uh, to do some work down there. Can you talk about that? Yes, I actually went twice. I went between my uh, freshman and sophomore year and then between my junior and senior year. So I went in 1972 and I went in 1974. I thoroughly enjoyed both experiences. I didn't know a ton of uh, Portuguese. I tried to learn a little bit, and so there we had a lot of experiences down there. We there were four of us, and we uh, didn't know each other. We got to know each other because we hung around for two months in Brazil and would sing in Portuguese, and because uh, we learned the Portuguese songs and would sing with guitars and. Um, people love to hear her sing. You know how it is when you have someone singing English and you know that's not their mother tongue and the way they pronounce certain words are 
kind of interesting. Uh, so I think that was going on. They just like us, like to hear us gringos, Americans try to try to sing in Portuguese. <laughs> so, but they 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 were uh, totally embraced us and were friendly to us. And a lot of the young people would uh, be in school, maybe learning English, and they would try to talk to us in English. And of course, we would try to talk. If the limited Portuguese. Uh, on, on both trips, there were uh, the first time there was a girl who was raised in Brazil, so she was totally fluent in Portuguese. And then, and the second time there was a guy who, who was fluent in Portuguese, so that was helpful. I remember Grandpa. Whenever your name would come up, like when we were playing cards or something, he'd always say he was proud of you because. You know, eventually you be, would become a pastor, but you, you were handy. That was another thing he was proud of. And the other thing was uh, he always told the story about how you, you hitchhiked with a girl at least once or twice from Nashville to Indiana. Yeah, hitchhiking was something I did a lot back then. And, of course, um, I'm not sure you want to do that today. It, it's not as safe. Even the back then, uh, it was a little bit unsafe because uh, you are vulnerable out there by yourself. Uh, I, mean, I had a friend in college. I actually was good friends with her brother, and um, Bonnie was the girl. Uh, I was going to go home for uh, Thanksgiving, I think it was, and uh, she was not going to go home. She was going to stay on campus. So I said to Bonnie, I say, hey, I'm going home. I'm going to hitchhike home. Would you like to go with me? And she said, sure, I'll go. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Bonnie and I hitchhiked from Nashville, Tennessee up to uh, Crothersville, I believe, at that time. It could have been Bedford. That mom and dad moved. Um, and we just showed up, you know, uh, for Thanksgiving. And the mom and dad, I don't know if they knew we were coming. This back before cell phones and things. So I, I may have told them, hey, I don't know if I'm coming or not. And I just showed up, and here I am. Not only do I show up, I show up with this girl, and they don't know what to think. Uh, this girl is this your girlfriend now? Who is this? Who is this girl? <clears throat> but I told him I said we're just friends, and we were. Uh, and I don't think um, she had an interest in dating me. I had, didn't have an interest in dating her, but <laughs> we we had a lot of fun. You know, Bo Bonnie was a lot of fun. She liked to joke and tell. Uh, stories and things like that. So, yeah, we hitchhiked up and, and back and didn't have a problem at all. Uh, my parents didn't necessarily like the fact that I hitchhiked everywhere, but I didn't have a car, so how else am I going to get around? I also hitchhiked from Nashville to uh, Olivet Nazarene University up in near Chicago. Ooh, that's a distance. Uh, yeah, that's quite a haul. What happened was uh, Trevecca was going to play Olivet on Olivet's court, basketball court in Kankakee, Illinois. And they had a bus, a big bus that they were, you know, you could get on and you could go to the basketball game from Nashville up to Kankakee and back after the game. So a lot of people were paying to ride on the bus. And I guess they stayed in homes or the dormitory. I didn't have the money to uh, even $25, best I remember what it cost. And so the bus left and I didn't go. And I thought, eh, I think I'll hitchhike up there and, and see the game. The, the great thing was my brother Jim was uh, a student at Olivet. And so I knew I could stay in the dorm with him. 
So I started off hitchhiking and I beat the bus up there. Wow. Uh, hitch, hitchhiking. And then I turned around, hitchhiked back, and I beat the bus back. Part of that is because you end up uh, getting rides with people who drive fast. One car that picked me up was a guy, uh, and I was the sixth person in the car. So there were five people, and come to find out, he was the only one who was part of that car in the sense that he was the driver and everybody else in there was hitchhiking. Uh, and he would just pick up people, and I was the last person who could get a seat in that car. That's <laughs> back in the day before he had seatbelts or anything. But uh, we didn't talk because the guy played his music so loud we couldn't talk. So it was, and he drove fast, and it, and he had happened to be going the same direction I was going, and so he got he got way ahead of the bus <laughs> when he was driving. That said, did you? Have any other interesting experiences or conversations with any of these drivers that gave you these rides? I do remember one time in particular, I was going through Kentucky and a guy picked me up and we drove for a while. He said, are you hungry? I said, yeah, I'm kind of hungry. And we stopped at a Kentucky fried chicken and I got a hamburger. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't get chicken, I, but it, but they served hamburgers at Kentucky Fried Chicken, at least where we stopped they did. And uh, it was one of the best hamburgers I ever had, and I think it was because I was so hungry. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, he uh, I'm not sure his motive. It could have been just being kind, or there might have been a nefarious. Uh, he asked me, he wasn't far from his home, but I'd just like to spend the night there. And I said, no, I, I need to travel on and get back where I'm going, to back to Nashville. And so uh, he let me off on the interstate wherever we were and, and went on home, I guess. And, and I traveled on down the road. But I, upon reflection, looking back, I'm thought, I wonder if that was something that uh, could have been dangerous. I've heard him sing the modern songs and songs of long ago. But amazing grace, how sweet the sound is. When I was at Trevecca, I, I think I've only failed one class in my entire lifetime, and it was with this professor, uh, Ray Dunning, and <laughs> I, I liked him a lot. I really just could sit there and listen to him talk all day, but unfortunately, it was an ethics class, which I know that in the off chance I should run for public office, you know, some drive-by reporter is going to find this and say, see, he, he failed ethics. We can't, he can't be trusted. <laughs> and one thing I'll say to, to Professor Dunning's credit was he did meet with me because I was doing so poorly. I just bombed a big t test exam. So he asked me the questions orally, and I answered them, and he says, yeah, that's exactly right. Why can't you get that on paper? You said you had him for logic. Uh, H. Ray Dunning uh, was also a uh, classmate of Dad when he was in college at Trevecca. So they went to college together. So I was familiar with the name H. Ray Dunning uh, even before I went to Trevecca. Of course, he uh, was quite a theologian and wrote some books that were standards uh, for ministers studying to be uh, pastors. But I took a class um, 
from H. Ray Dunning called Logic. I think that was the title, just one word. Um, and I found it very fascinating because uh, I had never had a class that described how I thought uh, and expanded on my logic. And he um, would methodically walk us through some of the principles of logic and what was logical and what wasn't logical. I found him to be a fascinating professor. I don't remember what grade I got. I probably could have, I probably got a C. I don't know. I didn't fail, but I, I, my grades were not great in college at first, but some things that I even use that logic from that class, even yet today, because he would talk about all some or none. I don't know if you remember that logic that he would talk about. And all is everything, 100%. None is 0%. And some can be anywhere between 0 and 100. <laughs> so if you say, well, I have some, uh, you, you could have a very small percentage or you could have a large percentage. And so sometimes we confuse all and none with having actually some, but we just say, I don't have any of those. Uh, well, we have some of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anyway, I th that was one of the things I remember even to this day about logic class and, and there are a lot more to it, of course, but uh, those are some, some of the things that I remember even yet today from that class back in the 70s. For folks that are maybe outside the Christian upbringing or worldview, there's this thing called a calling where well, you can explain it probably better than me, but basically you think you have figured out what you know God wants you to do with your life. So can you talk about uh, that concept, but also what ended up being your calling and particular circumstances surrounding that? Well, I think in some ways of looking at people being a pastor is that, well, your dad was a pastor. And that's why it's kind of like your dad was a lawyer, your dad was a physician, and so that's why you are a lawyer or a physician because your dad was and you um, either were encouraged to stay in that field or you were uh, in love with that field because you were around their parent who was uh, in that field. So some ministers um, are in the profession of being a pastor because um, it's something that their, their parents did. Uh, or some do it because they just are enamored with it. But it very strongly, it was brought up that you were, when I was being raised, that you were called, that God called you, and you just didn't decide to do it, or you liked it for some reason, or other people convinced you you should do it. But you 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 needed to be called. That was what was taught. So how uh, I became a minister uh, was a calling. And so when I was a teenager, um, I began to feel God's call upon my life to be a pastor. Now, uh, there were some uh, people in the church that kind of took it upon themselves to tell you that, hey, you're going to be a pastor or you're going to be a preacher when you grow up. And sometimes it's they'll let you know uh, that they they believe 
uh, you're called or they're trying to get you called <laughs> <laughs> by their own uh, affirmation of that. So I did. I had some people in the church said, oh, you're going to be a preacher like your dad when you grow up. And I would always say, I don't know. I don't think so. Uh-huh. I, I don't feel called. But then when I became a teenager, I began to sense that, yeah, that's what God wants me to do. And I wouldn't say I could point to one moment to where I said this is where it was and how it happened that I was called. But I was convinced by the time I was about a junior in high school that that's what God wanted me to do. Now, it was not what I wanted to do. I will say that. I had other ideas of what I wanted to do. I I was enamored with being a chiropractor. Um, But uh, that was not what God... So anytime I began to veer away from following the call and the training to be a pastor, I knew I was not in the center of God's will, that that's what he wanted me to do. And um, I might as well either surrender to that or my life is going to be miserable. Hmm. Have you ever met anybody, obviously you hang out with other pastors, ever met anybody who either you perceive maybe really didn't get the calling, but kind of like you say, they got pressured into it and maybe they just made the best of it or... Maybe they got into it for the wrong reasons. You know, I I can't say that I've met people that I thought, well, I don't, I don't think they're really called. Part part of it is I, I resist uh, going into that logic uh, because I'm not the one who calls. To, uh, it sometimes surprises me, people who are called and they say they're called, and eventually I go, yeah, they're right. They, they have the gifts and abilities and God's really, and then uh, the converse of that is true too. Some people uh, who I think uh, would make great pastors just don't feel the, the sense of that call. But uh, the calling is, uh, is personal. It's different to, for different people. It's like the apostle uh, Paul, Saul, was called on the road to Damascus, and but very few people have that dramatic of a call. Some do, mm-hmm. um, but mine was more of a dawning that this is what God wanted me to do. I did have some influences that encouraged me in that in that call. You know, Jim, my brother, mm-hmm. is a pastor. Uh, growing up, he did not feel a call at all to to be a pastor or a preacher. Went to college to in, in communications, in particular radio. So after he got out of college, he got a job working at a radio station, uh, doing the news and spinning records and things like that. That's what he did. And then he got called, uh, felt a call of God to be a missionary, not as a preacher or a pastor, but as uh, in radio. So he went to Africa, Transworld Radio, and his job was to respond to people who heard Showers of Blessing, or heard the radio program put out by the Church of Nazarene and called and requested books or requested something. That was Jim's role when he first went to Africa, was to respond to uh, inquiries or or letters of people wanting uh, resources uh, because of the radio program that they had heard. What happened, though, and this is leading into Jim's call to ministry, is because he was a missionary, people presumed uh, he was a preacher, but he wasn't. He was a layman who was there, but he would go around to different churches promoting literature 
and the radio program and different things like that. And since he was the missionary, they would say, oh, we want you to preach. Well, Jim was not a preacher. He was not a pastor, but he majored in communications. <laughs> so he was very good at speaking. And so everywhere he went, they would ask him to preach, and he would, he would preach. Uh, and that's how he got his call to preach. Hmm. Uh, basically, the church said to him, or at least the local churches said to him, we want you to preach. And he would preach. And then when he came back to the States, he pastored uh, uh, churches and still is pastoring yet today because his call kind of be- became a call uh, that people symbolically laid their hands on him and said, you're going to preach. Hmm. <laughs> I knelt there on the floor. He'd remind me just once more that the answer was already on the way. that my dad and I talk about a lot because you know in the news usually if you hear something about a pastor it's usually negative you know they've sure gotten in trouble usually sexually is the problem or they've embezzled money or you know who knows what and uh, I think me and my dad agree on this it's kind of feel like you can see how maybe with like Jim Baker for example he might be the best example as somebody if you look at maybe footage or uh maybe his writings at the beginning, you feel like he was probably pretty sincere, but somewhere he lost his way. But the thing that we both talk about, like say you mess up like that big time, one, do you still have the calling? And two, does that necessarily mean that you have to be a pastor? Because it seems like you've kind of ruined it or you've, you know, maybe you've uh, forfeited that, I don't say privilege, but that, yeah, that maybe that honor of being a pastor, but maybe she could just go do something else that still could be, helping people, but just not in the spotlight or uh, not, you know, be in charge of anybody's money or that type of thing. What what do you think about that? Well, the Church Nazarene has a very good, um, we might call it a reclamation um, system that uh, allows pastors who have fallen in some way. Most of the time it has to do with having a, inappropriate relationship with a person of the opposite sex, or it could be, uh, has to do with money, having misappropriated the funds or, or using church funds for personal, uh, use. And I think it was one of Jimmy Baker, Jim Baker's things. We have a, a system that, uh, if a pastor will, will, will just use a hypothetical situation, a pastor um, has an affair with the secretary at the church. It's found out. Uh, there's remorse. There's confession. There's an attempt to try to make it right. If that pastor wants to get back into the ministry, there is a way to do that. And I've been part of that on the inside. And what I mean by that is if a pastor um, has an affair, and truly confesses, truly wants to make it right, and truly wants to get back into the ministry, there's a system to where we, it's pretty spelled out that you meet with ministers. And so I've been on that side of it, where I met with a person, there were three or four of us that met with them 
consistently, regularly, and talk to them about how things were going. And of course, part of that also was counseling, uh, especially if they wanted to uh, get back with their spouse. There was counseling required. And so we would have checkups with that person and see how the counseling was going, see how they were doing, see what they were thinking about uh, their call and their desire to get back into the ministry. So it's wonderful when you see someone who has fallen and it's not the unpardonable sin. It is a serious sin and does a lot of damage, but it's not unpardonable. So uh, I've been able to see firsthand where a person truly was remorseful and truly uh, tried to patch their life back up and and got counseling to try to figure out why in the world it happened that they were to, you know, to sin like that. And so uh, it's wonderful when you see that person eventually go through all the paces that are required to then get your credentials back and uh, become effective uh, in ministry again. We do believe in restoration. We, we believe in uh, a person's uh, sin should not define them. Will that always be there? Yeah, that scar will always be there. And some people will always see them through that lens, which is unfortunate because they need to see them to what God has done post uh, the fall. I rejoice when that kind of thing happens. It's troubling when um, a person doesn't want to go through the process, but wants to get back into ministry. And I've also seen that happen. And that's disturbing to me because they were not willing to be humble themselves, go through the process, find real healing, try to find out really what went off the rails and how they could come back and become effective again afterwards. Well, it's interesting you say about people not willing to be humbled. Uh, there, You may have seen this, but in Indiana, there was a, a pastor that it seems like he was forced to confess to an affair he had had, but he wanted to do it on his own terms. And the woman who apparently she was underage when it started, and I guess the way she tells it, he kind of forced himself on her or... Right. I've, I've followed that story a little bit. Yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with the story. Yeah. She showed up to the church to kind of make sure he told the story right, and he didn't. And so yeah, she... She got up. <laughs> she got up and she told the whole story, but you could see the look on his face like, that's not how he wanted it to go. And I thought, man, he, he, he's not humbled yet. You know, he... Oh, and the church surrounded him uh, and affirmed him after she told her story. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's nothing wrong with affirming and trying to help a guy, but if he's in denial, that's a big problem. If he's not willing to step aside for a while, get healing, then I see that as as a flaw. It is interesting how our society is a little bit not consistent uh, on a lot of things, but like if somebody, say, wasn't a Christian and maybe they murdered a bunch of people, but in prison, they say they found God and they really did make a change. And then people seem to be more accepting of them being like in the spotlight as a pastor or, you know, look, look, look what he was able to accomplish. But if somebody, you know, started off on the good road, th- then fell and then try to come back, they don't get the same amount of respect or amount of forgiveness, I suppose you might say. I think part of the American culture is we like redemption. 
We like to see uh, someone who has failed for whatever reason, who then um, makes something of their life later. Uh-huh. Now, we're not big fans of someone who consistently <laughs> fails. <laughs> and after like two strikes, you know, three strikes, you're out. Right. So, um, but I do think we, we like to see people come back from uh, failed, gone to prison, come out and, and made, made something of themselves. But I do think that we do have a higher standard for certain fields. For instance, if a um, if a doctor is there some sort of malpractice that that they do, it's hard for them to become a doctor again. And teachers, principals, or whatever who have done something, we're not as forgiving for them as we might be for a newscaster or or a politician. Who we kind of know that's the kind of the culture of of that. So I do think we. We have different standards, and I think it should be, actually. Where the steeple's so high, and reaches to the sky, and pride has to end, where love could have been. They no longer kneel and pray in the old-fashioned way they just stand up. We don't want to end this on such a somber note. So this is back at Trevecca. You were the film operator, right, for one of these classes. Talk about your stellar performance in that uh, endeavor. (laughs) (laughs) The best way I remember the uh, name of the class was World Civilization. And I worked for the audiovisual department at the college. That was my work study uh, program. And so my job was to set up screens and projectors and all kinds of things that the professors would want. Sometimes professors would want screens every day and projectors every day, so we just kind of left them in the room. But sometimes professors would only use them occasionally, so we'd have to set them up and then tear them down, take them back to the basement of the library where all the AV stuff was uh, held. But um, there was one class that was actually a world civilization class was a 16 millimeter film class. And there was was not a teacher. It was just, uh, best I recall, 10, 12 films that were shipped one at a time and the class saw the film and then it was sent back. Yeah, they really didn't have a professor for that class. They asked me if I would be in charge of setting up the films and taking attendance, showing the film, taking attendance, and then after the class saw the film, I would box the film up and send it back. So I, I was in charge of the class. I really wasn't a professor. I didn't say anything. I just took attendance and showed the film. But the um, room that the projector was set up in had a uh, projection room, which was a separate room uh, with, with glass. So the projector was on the other side of the glass, and it was a locked room most of the time. <laughs> One time, I um, set up the film for the class and then I went back to the dorm to take a nap and I overslept (laughs) and I did not get there in time for the class and so the kids you know they came to class and they could see the projector in the room on the other side of the glass and they knew that it was ready to go but they couldn't get in there because it was a locked room and so they all just wrote down their names on a piece of paper and left them uh, there uh, by the projection room 
And so when I woke up and ran over there, everybody was gone. There was a list of all the people who had attended the class that day. So we we never did see that uh, that part of world civilization film. <laughs> we just uh, skipped over it and went to the next one. And I apologized, and they didn't like it, but they they were okay with the fact that they only saw nine of the ten classes. <laughs> what if in that class there was some guy that would end up being a, a major world American leader, and he missed out on that film and ended up starting a war because he didn't <laughs> know nothing about that culture? <laughs> what, I know nothing. Yeah. Way, way to go, Uncle Paul. <laughs> what do you mean? You didn't study that in college? Yeah. <laughs> Egypt was once my home. I was a slave. Every since in the like to hear more of Uncle Paul's tales, check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episodes 256 and 261. Also, my dad, Paul's brother, relays some of his odd encounters in my hometown of Boonville, Indiana on episode 235. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.